Well, ladies, as we come to God's word in Genesis again, I'd like to start out by reminding us that as we examine the truths of these stories, that the biblical record does not record every single detail of what happened in a given story, or perhaps everything that would even satisfy our curiosity, but it does record every single detail that we need to know. And so I would encourage all of us not to get caught up in speculation about what the text doesn't explain, but focus on God's perfect revelation to us. Well, God had Moses write this book after the exodus from Egypt and before the Israelites had conquered the land of Canaan. And it also included every detail that those Israelites needed to know as they prepared to enter the land. This was the land that God had pledged to give them. They were the promised descendants of the patriarchs that we've been studying. These stories taught the Israelites about the blessings that had been promised them, about who they were, and about who God is. And those are some of the same things that God was teaching Jacob in our chapters that we've studied this week. The topic of blessing is seen over and over in this section about Jacob's life, and that's reflected in our outline today. There are paternal blessings from fathers and earthly blessings that are wonderful, But I hope you will see as we consider this passage that the blessing that matters most comes ultimately from God alone and is not dependent on any human achievement. That's not to say there aren't ramifications for how we choose to live our lives. There are certainly painful consequences for sin, and we know Jacob suffered through many of those. There are also earthly blessings for obedience, and Jacob experienced those as well. But by far, The most important blessings in Jacob's life and in our lives today are the unearned, eternal blessings that only God can give. Well, Jacob is quite a character, isn't he? Known for much of his life as a trickster and a deceiver, and yet the next in the line of the patriarchs through whom the promised seed would come and to whom God had promised to give land, seed, and blessing. Last week, we read how Isaac prayed for his barren wife, Rebecca. The Lord granted his prayer, and she became pregnant with twin sons. And these two had conflict from the beginning, didn't they? Genesis 25 tells us that when she was pregnant, she felt the movement of these babies struggling within her, and she inquired of the Lord, and he told her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. These brothers were fighting each other in the womb, and even at birth, although Esau came out first, Jacob was grabbing Esau's heel. This action resulted in Jacob's name, which means one who takes by the heel, but also has the connotation of deceiver. And both deceiving and being deceived played a prominent role in Jacob's life as I'm sure you saw in your lesson this week. The discord between the brothers grew as they grew and was probably exacerbated by the favoritism that each of their parents showed toward a different brother. We're familiar with the story of how Jacob convinced Esau to sell his birthright in exchange for a bowl of red stew. Even though the Lord had already told their mother that the older would serve the younger, Jacob seemed intent on bringing this about by his own means rather than trusting God to fulfill his word. Meanwhile, Isaac favored Esau. Moses wrote that Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, 
and that Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. It seems likely that Isaac knew what the Lord had said about his sons, and yet clearly he showed preference for his firstborn Esau. So as chapter 27 opens, it's obvious that even though Jacob has managed to finagle the birthright away from his older twin brother, Isaac had every intention of bestowing the special patriarchal blessing on Esau. If you're like me, you may not have been entirely certain about the difference between a birthright and a blessing. The birthright involved privileges that the firstborn son was normally entitled to. It usually included a double portion of the inheritance and special authority as the head of the family and the priest of the family in those days before the tabernacle or the temple. A blessing was basically invoking a bestowal of good on the person who received it. Our pastor described it as a prayer wish in the MacArthur Study Bible. Of course, there was a special significance to the paternal blessings of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, since they were not only passing on temporal earthly benefits, but God's eternal blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And in the time of the patriarchs, their blessings had great significance for the future of their descendants. Now, if you would, please open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 27, and we'll look at the first point on our outline, a father's blessing stolen, a father's blessing stolen from chapter 27. Well, the first verses of this chapter tell us that Isaac is old and blind and isn't sure how much longer he will live. At this point, he is already 137 years old, the same age Ishmael was when he died. I'd always pictured this story happening when Jacob and Esau were perhaps young adults, but if you do the math from the the dates and ages given in scripture, you'll realize the twins were 77 years old at this time. And Esau had already been married for about almost 40 years, about 37 years. Well, you all know the story. Isaac told Esau to go hunting, make the delicious food he loved, and he would bless Esau, passing on the covenant of promises of God to the next generation in the line of the promised seed. God had already said the younger son would be blessed with prominence, but it seems that Isaac was stubbornly ignoring this in favor of passing on the blessing to his favorite son. Rebecca, of course, overheard all of this and came to her favorite son, Jacob, with a devious scheme to undermine Isaac's plan and ensure that Jacob would receive the far-reaching blessing rather than Esau. See, back in Genesis 25, when Rebecca had the problem of the battling babies inside her, Rebecca inquired of the Lord, and he answered her. But this time, when faced with the problem of Isaac's plan to bless the wrong son, she didn't go to the Lord or even to her husband. She quite literally cooked up a deceitful plan to trick her husband. She did not act by faith, but in her flesh. She did not trust God to bring about what he said he would do. How often do we act like this? Not trusting God to do what's best? We would probably never say those words. But with our actions, we show that we do not trust his power or his goodness if we try to manipulate people in situations or if we act in an ungodly way to try to achieve what we think should happen. Psalm 84, 11, and 12 tell us that the Lord gives grace and glory No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It says, O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. These verses help us realize that if God is withholding something from us at this time, then it is not good for us right now. 
And we can be assured that he is always working for the good of those who love him. Well, Rebecca and Jacob set out to trick the senses of sightless Isaac. They made Jacob smell and feel outdoorsy, um, like hairy Esau. And Rebecca made food seasoned to taste like Esau's game. Although Isaac heard that Jacob's voice didn't sound like his brother, he ultimately had to be convinced by all the other evidence. Well, Jacob not only deceived his father, he lied repeatedly. He declared, I am Esau, your firstborn. And he even brought God into it, claiming that he could come so quickly because the Lord had given him success in hunting. As you know, the ruse worked, and Isaac unwittingly gave his younger son Jacob the blessing he intended for his firstborn. In this blessing, we hear echoes of the Abrahamic covenant. Peoples and nations would bow to him. And Isaac referenced God's words to Abram in Genesis 12:3, that those who bless him would be blessed, and those who curse him would be cursed. If you look down at Genesis 27, starting at verse 27, it says, So he came close and kissed him, and when he, Isaac, smelled the smell of his garments, that's Jacob smelling like Esau, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. Well, Jacob got what he came for. He stole the blessing that he so craved. Jacob was clever, but he was not wise. According to Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. At this point in his life, Jacob did not fear the Lord, and he did not have the wisdom or understanding that comes from knowing him. Proverbs 10.2 declares that treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Ladies, would God still have ensured that Jacob received the promised blessing without Jacob's deceit and sin? Yes, yes of course. God worked through that situation in spite of Jacob's sin, not because of it. God never needs our sin to bring about his will or to fulfill his promises. And sinning to get what we want or think we should have never actually makes things better for us. Sin has painful consequences. We bring more pain and difficulty into our lives when we try to manipulate or get ahead or accomplish our desires in any way that is not honoring to God. We never end up better off than we would be if we prayed, waited on God's timing while doing what is right. Instead of talking to God or waiting for God to work out the details and freely give him the blessing, Jacob would pay a high price for it. Esau hated him and wanted to kill him. He had to leave home for two decades. He never saw his beloved mother again, and he experienced the pain of being the one that was deceived over and over and over again. It's important to note that although Isaac had been determined to, to bless his older twin, Esau, when he discovered what had happened, he trembled violently, and it seems that he realized that he had been resisting God's plan all this time. He confirmed to Esau that the blessing of Jacob would stand. And in the next chapter, Isaac blessed Jacob directly. The next point in our outline is two blessings freely given. 
This comes from chapter 28, point two, two blessings freely given. In the last section, Jacob stole a blessing meant for someone else. But in this chapter, he will receive two blessings fully intended for him. The first one from his father, Isaac, and the second one from God himself. As you know, when Rebekah heard that Esau wanted to kill Jacob, she had Isaac send Jacob away to her brother Laban's family and Padan Aram to find a wife from their family, unlike Esau, who had married pagan Hittite women. The Satellite Bible Atlas describes Jacob's journey as setting out in fear of his life and in search of a wife. (laughs) When Isaac sent him off, he blessed Jacob, this time knowingly, as he had come to recognize that this was God's plan all along. If you look down at verse 3 of Genesis 28, Isaac said, May God Almighty, that's El Shaddai, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. We've heard that phrase, be fruitful and multiply, a few times before, haven't we? Verse 4, May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. The word descendants, or your version might say offspring, is literally the word seed. The line of the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head, promised back in Genesis 3.15, will come through, through Jacob. Isaac references those three things we keep hearing about, land, seed, and blessing. Well, Moses had previously described Jacob as a peaceful man living in tents. Perhaps we could call Jacob a homebody. Now, this man who liked to stick close to home was having to make a journey of about 550 miles on foot from his family's home in Beersheba, the southern part of what's now Israel, all the way up to Haran in modern-day Turkey, like near the Syrian border. One night, Jacob had to stop for the night because the sun went down. And as you know, in a time before electric lights, that meant it was very dark. It seems he was traveling on his own without much more than a staff to walk with. He used a stone for a pillow. And while he slept on the ground, God gave him a unique dream of a ladder or more likely a stairway between earth and heaven. Angels were going up and down on it. And the Lord, Yahweh himself, was there. At this low point in Jacob's life, we have the first record of God speaking directly to him. God amazingly confirmed the promises of the Abrahamic covenant to him, an astounding and utterly deserved blessing freely given by God. Listen for the land's seed or descendants and blessing if you look down at verses 13 through 15 of chapter 28. I am the Lord Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then, as Jacob is about to leave the land of promise, God gives him a promise to bring him back to the land. Verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Well, we've been speaking of blessings, and we know the one that would ultimately bring blessing to all the families of the earth was Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. 
Nearly 2,000 years after this, Jesus compared himself to the stairway in Jacob's dream. In John 1.51, Jesus was speaking to Nathanael, who had just acknowledged him as Rabbi, the Son of God and the King of Israel. Jesus told him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus was the one who bridged the gap between earth and heaven and who made access to God possible. Well, Jacob woke up and he set his pillow stone up as a pillar and he named the place Bethel, meaning house of God. He did not build an altar to worship the Lord at this time. He did make a vow. It starts in verse 20 where he says, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and till I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Having made this promise, Jacob continued walking day after day for several weeks until he came all the way up to Haran, the land where his mother had grown up. Now we come to Genesis chapter 29 and point three on our outline, a blessing begun. A blessing begun. In this section, we will see how God gave blessings to Jacob even during his many years in exile, displaced from the promised land as a result of his sin. We've seen that Rebekah could be deceitful, but Jacob is about to learn that her brother Laban was even more so. Once Jacob arrived at a well in Haran, he seemed to be more reliant on himself than God, and we see the contrast with the actions of Abraham's godly servant on a similar mission years before. Yet, in his kind providence, God brought Laban's daughter, Rachel, to the exact place Jacob was. After only a month of living and working with her family, Jacob had fallen in love with beautiful Rachel and wanted to marry her. Since he didn't have any way to pay the traditional bride price, he offered to give unpaid work to Laban instead. Laban agreed, and Genesis 29.20 says that Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. However, in the most likely very dark hours of their wedding night that left Jacob about as blind as his father had been seven years earlier, Laban brought Rachel's older and less attractive sister Leah to Jacob's tent instead. She was probably veiled, and with little or no light, Jacob did not realize that he had been tricked until the next morning after the marriage was already consummated. The man who had once deceived his father by pretending to be his older brother was now deceived by a father into marrying the older sister of the woman he loved. As you know, Laban was indifferent to Jacob's dismay and protest. He simply told Jacob to take a honeymoon with Leah for a week, and then he could also marry Rachel, naturally, for another seven years of work. So one week later, Jacob found himself with another labor contract and two wives, one of whom he didn't want. We don't know how much of a choice Leah had in her father's subterfuge, but what we can tell is that she was grieved in her marriage because she was the unloved, unwanted wife. Her husband's clear preference was for Leah's younger sister, Rachel, the woman that he had essentially worked, he was essentially working 14 years to have, since neither set of seven years was for Leah. Although it wasn't written yet in Jacob's day, 
God prohibited marrying sisters in the Mosaic law in Leviticus. It said that you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive. Of course, God's design for marriage was what he set up in the Garden of Eden with the first two people, one man and one woman for life. The laws related to polygamy, just like those for divorce, did not encourage those choices, but they set up guidelines in case they were to happen. And in scripture, when we see people with multiple wives, God allows us to see the conflict and the hardship that result from this deviation from God's design, just like we see in our current story. Well, our God of grace saw Leah's pain, and he cared about her. We've been shown repeatedly in Genesis that God is sovereign over all things, And Genesis 29, 31 says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. You probably know that back then, being barren was seen as a shameful thing, and having children, especially sons, brought honor to women. Leah hoped that giving Jacob a son would cause him to finally love her. And so begins the story of how the tribes of Israel got their names. Now, I know that I've had trouble in the past keeping track of all of Jacob's children, let alone their mothers, so I put a chart together to help myself, and we printed it, so hopefully you either got one last week or you'll get one this week. Um, It lists the sons that came from each mother and the meaning of their names and what was happening in the story. So I'm going to move quickly through the names now, and you don't have to try to write them all down. You can just refer to that sheet. Most of the boys' names were essentially puns, where the name that they were given sounds similar to a Hebrew word or phrase that related to what the mother was thinking or feeling when they were born. Leah gave birth to four sons in a row, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. With each of the first three, their names and her comments showed that she hoped giving Jacob's sons would cause him to love her. This did not happen. And then with her fourth son, she seemed to have a shift in mindset, didn't she? Rather than conveying her longing for her husband's affection, Judah's name means praise. And Leah simply said, this time I will praise the Lord. When Isaac had blessed Jacob before sending him away, he had said, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. And with Leah's four sons, Jacob was beginning to see God answer that prayerful blessing. And yet we know from Israel's history, that was only the beginning. Rachel, Jacob's beloved but barren wife, was very jealous of her sister's fertility. In chapter 33, she complains to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Shockingly, that didn't help and just made Jacob angry. His response was theologically correct. He acknowledged God's sovereignty as the one who withheld from Rachel the fruit of the womb. And yet, unlike his father Isaac, Jacob did not pray to ask God to give his wife children. Rather than turn to the Lord, Jacob again listened to a woman encouraging him to take matters into his own hands. Desperate for children, Rachel took advantage of an ancient Near Eastern custom, providing a surrogate to bear children for her. And she gave Jacob her maid, Billa, just like Sarai had done many years earlier with Abram. Well, Rachel's plan worked, and Billa gave birth to two sons— Rachel named them since they were considered hers. She named the first boy Dan, saying God had vindicated her, and the second boy she called Naphtali, or Naphtali, with a comment that she had wrestled with her sister and won. The baby war, however, was not over. Possibly provoked by what Rachel had been saying and having realized that she was no longer getting pregnant, 
Leah gave her maid Zilpah to Jacob as a concubine-type wife. Zilpah gave birth to Gad and Asher, whose names mean good fortune and happy. Leah was apparently also praying for more children. And despite the human maneuvering that was taking place in this chapter, God gave her a fifth son, whom she named Issachar, and then a sixth called Zebulun. The next baby born to Jacob and Leah is a break in the pattern. It's a girl. They had a daughter named Dinah. She's the only daughter of Jacob that's mentioned by name in Genesis, and it seems that she's mentioned here because of the sad events that will take place later in Genesis chapter 34. Well then, after years of waiting and prayers and sorrow and trying to take matters into her own hands, verse 22 says, Then God remembered Rachel, and God gave heed. He listened to her, and he opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. Joseph means, may he add. God was keeping his word and had blessed Jacob with a large family, 11 sons and a daughter in just seven years of marriage. Jacob wanted to go home, but Laban recognized that God's blessing of Jacob was benefiting him as well and persuaded him to stay. After six years of tending the flocks, in Genesis 31, 6 and 7, Jacob explained to his wives, Leah and Rachel, you know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. Jacob recognized God's sovereign hand now, even over the animals that were born. He had become very wealthy only because of God's protection and undeserved blessing on his life. Genesis 30, 43 says, So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Well, Jacob knew his brothers-in-law were jealous over their diminishing inheritance, and Laban wasn't very happy with him either. Meanwhile, God told him in Genesis 31, 13, I am the God of Bethel. And he told him to leave this land and return to the land of your birth. God had done what Jacob asked him to at Bethel and more. He was with him and kept him and gave him above and beyond the food and clothes Jacob had asked him to provide. And now God was going to bring Jacob back to the land. While Laban was out of town, Jacob took his family and all he owned and left as quickly as a big family and all those animals could to head home afraid that Laban would have used force to prevent them from leaving. Jacob was also convinced that, in his words, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you, Laban, would have sent me away empty-handed. God protected Jacob when Laban hunted him down, and he was able to continue on his way back to Canaan. Despite the fact that Jacob had left the promised land with almost nothing to his name because of his sin— He was on his way home, graciously blessed by God, with a family, many descendants, and abundant wealth and flocks. We come now to point four, the blessing of a new name. This will be a key turning point in Jacob's life. Point four, the blessing of a new name in Genesis chapter 32. With the threat of Laban behind him, Jacob had another danger on his mind. He was returning to the home he had left 20 years earlier when his twin brother wanted to kill him. Jacob wanted to reconcile with the brother he had wronged, but he was terrified. 
Jacob always had a plan, though, didn't he? This time, as he prepared to meet Esau, he first sent messengers with a humble statement. When he heard that Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men, and that didn't seem like a good sign, Jacob feared the worst and divided his people and possessions into two camps in the hopes that at least one of them would survive. He did, though, send a large gift to Esau, 550 valuable animals. But more important than any of these, what did Jacob do differently this time? He prayed. He was humble. He quoted God's word back to him, and he begged the Lord to deliver them on the basis of his promises. Look down with me at Genesis 32, starting in verse 9. Jacob said, I love this prayer. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. He then sent everyone and everything he had across the Jabbok, a river that flows west into the Jordan River. Jacob was now alone. Suddenly, he was attacked in the dark. Verse 24 states that a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now keep in mind, Jacob was 97 years old at this point. He'd been out of the land for 20 years, but he was still exceptionally strong, and he wrestled with his unnamed attacker all night, neither one of them giving in, neither one of them winning. Finally, at sunrise, Jacob's opponent touched his hip and put it out of joint. But even with this painful injury, Jacob refused to relinquish his hold. I will not let you go until you bless me, he declared. Well, you probably know that names in the Bible are often linked to a person's character. So the man asked his name, and by saying Jacob, he was admitting to his character as a deceiver. The man then said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. There are several ways to describe the meaning of Jacob's new name, but the idea of Israel seems to be he strives or struggles with God. It could be interpreted as striving alongside God or striving against God. And as the descendants of the newly renamed Israel grew into a nation, we definitely see times when each of these things are true. The man would not reveal his own name to Jacob, but blessed him instead And by this point, Jacob had come to realize that he had been wrestling all night with God himself. It was the pre-incarnate Christ on that dark, dark night. Hosea 12, 2-5 references this event, and the prophet wrote about Jacob that in his maturity he contended with God, yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. And it talks about even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Jacob named the place Peniel or Penuel, which meant face of God. And he explained that it was because he had seen God face to face, but his life was preserved. Just as easily as the man had touched his hip and instantly crippled him, the man could have taken his life at any point. Jacob had a personal, up-close encounter with holy God, 
And Jacob still lived only because of God's grace. Jacob was blessed by God himself, no longer to be characterized as the deceiver, but now as one who had struggled with God and men and prevailed. The blessing of this new name also indicated his new character. The nation of Israel needed to hear about how they had received their name too. They were not only Semites, descendants of Shem, or Hebrews, descendants of Eber, but they were Israelites, descendants of Israel and each of his sons. Although all descended from Abraham, so were the Ishmaelites. Although all of them were descended from Isaac, so were the Edomites. But God's chosen people alone were the Israelites. The text says that as he left, he was limping because of his hip, and he probably continued to have that limp for the rest of his life, a daily reminder of the encounter with God that forever changed him. His physical strength was permanently diminished, but he had at last gained spiritual strength. With Jacob, or Israel, now a changed man, we come to point five, the blessing of forgiveness and the blight of vengeance. The blessing of forgiveness and the blight of vengeance from chapters 33 and 34. Chapter 33 opens on the same day that Jacob had been wrestling with God. Esau and his 400 men were now within sight. He had prayed the day before and admitted his fears to God, asking for God's deliverance from his brother. He had good reason to be afraid. As Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, he had treated Esau in a thoroughly shabby manner. Jacob had hoped to pacify Esau by sending gifts ahead, and now he approached his brother with humility, bowing repeatedly. As it had been throughout Jacob's tempestuous life, it was not his plan that brought about the peaceful reconciliation with Esau. It was God acting to bless him, this time with the blessing of forgiveness. God had graciously answered Jacob's humble prayer and worked in Esau's heart. Esau ran to Jacob and embraced him. Both men wept. After years of conflict and two decades of alienation, these twin brothers were at last reconciled. We see the blessing of forgiveness from God's hand. Esau, you know, wanted Jacob to come with him to Seir, but instead Jacob and his family headed first to Sukkot, and then, if you note chapter 33, verse 18, it says, Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Back at Bethel in chapter 28, when Jacob was fleeing from Esau's murderous anger, God had promised, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. God had graciously kept his promise, and now Jacob and the sons of Israel were safely back in the promised land. In verse 19, we have the record of Jacob's first and only purchase of land in Canaan, He bought the land where he had pitched his tent outside of Shechem. Other than the burial cave at Machpelah that Abram brought, where the patriarchs and the wives that were in the line of the seed were buried, this was the only piece of land owned in Canaan by any of the patriarchs. Hundreds of years later, Joshua 24.32 says that they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem, in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor. Shechem was an important city in biblical history. This is where, in Genesis 12, the Lord first appeared to Abram and promised him the land. And Abram built an altar here. In Genesis 33:20, we see that Jacob erected an altar here and called it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. 
The word is not the usual Hebrew word for building an altar, and it might mean that Jacob reconstructed his grandfather's altar from years earlier. Since his encounter with God at Penuel, we see Jacob no longer just setting up stones of remembrance, but building altars for worship. The God of his fathers has become his own God, the God of Israel. Well, the people Jacob bought the land from are described in verse 19 as the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father. So there's both a city of Shechem and a son named Shechem. And the mention of these people foreshadows the trouble coming in the next chapter. So here we come to the second half of point five, the blight of vengeance. In chapter 34, while living in a tent near the city of Shechem, a terrible thing happened. Jacob and Leah's daughter Dinah went out to visit the women of the land. She ended up being accosted by the man Shechem, the son of Hamor. He seized her and slept with her. Apparently after that, he went from just lusting after her to loving her and decided he wanted to marry her. He sent his dad off to make it happen. But the proposed arrangement was spiritually dangerous for the family of Jacob because Hamor wanted all of them to intermarry and become one people. But the line of God's chosen seed was not to intermarry with the Canaanites. They were to remain distinct. Jacob's sons were understandably livid over the wrong that had been done to their sister. But like their father before them, they used deceitful means to carry out their own sinful plan. They acted like they would be willing to intermarry as long as all the men of Shechem would consent to be circumcised. Amazingly, the men agreed and convinced all the rest of the men of the city to go along with it. But then, while the men were weakened during their recovery, Simeon and Levi, two of Dinah's full brothers, killed all the men of the entire city and took their sister back. Rather than ensuring that the one man at fault was brought to justice, they carried out excessive vengeance. Then the rest of Jacob's sons plundered the city. Shechem's actions against Dinah were reprehensible, but so was Simeon and Levi's massacre of all the men of the city. In Genesis 49, at the end of Jacob's life, when he was giving blessings to his 12 sons, which included pronouncements regarding their future generations, this event affected what would happen to the tribes that came from Simeon and Levi, and even their allotments in the Promised Land. Jacob rebuked his sons at the end of Genesis 34 and told them that they had endangered the entire family since the people of the land would be out for revenge, and Jacob's family did not have the means to defend themselves against such an attack. Excessive retribution has brought a blight on Jacob and his family, and they once again face danger. Now we come to our sixth and final point, blessing and bereavement. Blessing and bereavement from chapter 35. In Genesis 35, God told Jacob to go to Bethel and dwell and make an altar there. God described himself as the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Jacob instructed everyone in his household to put away their foreign gods, purify themselves, and change their clothes because they were going to Bethel, which you will remember means house of God. All traces of idolatry had to be eradicated. He explained that he was going there to make an altar and listen to how he describes God to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. He says God answers him, not answered, but it has the idea of ongoing action. God is continually answering him when he's in distress, and he recognizes that God has kept his promise. The very first time Jacob was at Bethel, God had promised to be with him, 
and keep him wherever he went. Jacob had been concerned about what would happen to them because of Simeon and Levi's actions, but by God's grace and his power, their group was supernaturally protected as they journeyed to Bethel. Because verse 5 says that a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. Jacob went, built the altar, and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. Building the altar was an act of worship to the Lord, and it was part of the fulfillment of the vow that he had made to God during his first time at Bethel years earlier. A little later, God appeared again to Jacob, and God gave him an important blessing that sounds a lot like what God had said to Abram and to Isaac. If you look down at Genesis 35, starting in verse 10, God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he, calls him, he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. So God reiterated his name change to Israel. And then he repeated the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant and confirmed that these would come through Israel and his descendants. Israel is the heir of the divine promises. This also fulfills the blessing that Isaac gave Jacob when he was sent away. In response, Jacob set up a stone pillar as was often done for covenants and reaffirmed that this place would be called the house of God. Bethel. His family left Bethel to travel south, possibly intending to go toward Hebron and his father Isaac. However, along the way, tragedy struck. Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, had hard labor while she was giving birth to her second son. This was the boy she had prayed for when she named Joseph years earlier, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. God had answered her prayer, and the baby was safely delivered. But Genesis 35:18 says, "It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, that means son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, son of my right hand." Benjamin was the last of Jacob's 12 sons, from whom the 12 tribes of Israel would defend, would descend, and he was the only one born in the promised land. Moses then took the opportunity to recount all 12 sons and their mothers, but before he did, he added a note in verse 22 that Reuben had done a disgraceful thing. He had slept with Bilhah, Rachel's servant, who had become Jacob's concubine, and was the mother of two of Reuben's half-brothers. No reaction by Jacob is recorded, only that he heard about it. But years later in Egypt, when Jacob called his sons around his deathbed for their final blessings— he revoked Reuben's rights as the firstborn son because of this sinful incident. In verse 27 of chapter 35, after decades of separation, Jacob at last was reunited with his father Isaac. This was yet another fulfillment of what Jacob had said in his vow on his first trip through Bethel. God had indeed graciously brought him back to his father's house in peace. Another blessing in the life of Jacob. You may recall that years earlier, Isaac thought he would die soon, which led to him planning on blessing Esau, but God gave him many more years of life and graciously allowed Jacob and Isaac to see each other once again. At the end of chapter 35, 43 years after the day that split their family, we are told that at 180 years of age, Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people 
an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. The final chapter of our lesson this week gave us more information about Esau and his descendants, the people of Edom. You remember that God had said of the twins during Rebekah's pregnancy that two nations were in her womb. And one of the things this chapter does is show us the fulfillment of God's word. Moses showed in chapter 36 that Esau did indeed become a nation, as God had said, before continuing on with the larger story of the sons of Esau's younger brother, now named Israel, who would become the stronger nation and carry on the line of the promised seed, obtain the promised land, and receive the promised blessings from Yahweh. Perhaps, as I often do, you shake your head at the many choices Jacob made. Perhaps you wonder why on earth God chose him to continue the line of the promised seed through which the Messiah, our Savior Jesus Christ, would one day come. Perhaps you look at his life and think, but God, he was so unworthy. Yes, exactly. He was. God's blessing was not dependent on anything Jacob was or anything Jacob did. Does that sound familiar? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And why in the world would he set his love on us like that? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. My friends, that is true blessing. You probably recognize those parts from Ephesians 2. Just like Jacob, there was nothing about who we were and nothing we could do that could convince God to bless us. We were utterly unworthy, but God. Praise the Lord that he doesn't choose the worthy. If he did, no one would be saved. Instead, he sets his great love on unworthy sinners. He paid the price for our salvation with his own beloved son, the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for every person who trusts only in Jesus' sacrifice in our place, he declares us worthy not because of us, but because we are in Christ with his perfect righteousness credited to our account. In the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, truly all the families of the earth have been blessed. We can say like Jacob did back in his prayer, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown your servant. So it's true that a lot of times the people we call heroes of the faith don't act very much like heroes But that's a reminder to us that God is the hero of all the Bible stories. Our God is a God who blesses undeserving sinners that he chooses to set his love upon. And we praise him for it. This week we've seen how he changed Jacob the deceiver into Israel. He took a liar and a cheat. He taught him who God is and showed him who he was. And then he graciously changed him. God blessed him beyond measure, not because he was worthy but because he always keeps his promises and God chose him. God, for those of us here who know you as our Lord, we thank you for your great and your gracious gift of salvation. And for those who don't know you, we pray that just as you did with Jacob, you would show them who they are and show them who you are, that you would bring them to yourself in humble repentance. 
We pray that you would please help us to walk worthy of the calling that you've given us, to live as salt and light in the world until you come back to bring us to the blessing of our eternal heavenly home. In Jesus' name, amen.